Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. We're in this series we call Response. Uh, It's just a short little series, but today we're focusing on our gospel response as it relates to each other, relationships, as it relates to relationships. And ultimately today, as I've been studying this week, we know that Jesus has given us that answer. And that answer is kind of woven through the entirety of the scriptures, but it's especially plain and clear in John chapter 13, verse 35. And that's where we're gonna start today. How does the gospel affect our relationship John 13, 35 says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is this, John? If you have love for one another. By this, if you have love for for one another. So how does the gospel affect our relationships? The answer is the gospel empowers us to love one another. Thanks for coming. See you back next week. Have a great day. That's what we're going to unpack today. So get that down and then I'm going to give you a lot more to sort of undergird the main points. This is how the world will know that you are my Disciples. It was Veterans Day on Friday. We, we've already honored you. We've recognized you, I know. So I'm not gonna make you stand up again, but we do honor you for your sacrifice and service to our country. And I was thinking about Veterans Day and I was thinking about all of the different branches of our military. And as it relates to the uniform that we wear as Christians and how the world sees us, I was thinking about that in relation to the military. The uniform is very important to our armed forces. The uniform that is worn is is very important. It it clearly identifies them. It, 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 It sets them apart from others. It represents honor and excellence and preparedness. But it also sets them apart from their enemies. Right, the uniform's very important. I was thinking about uh, Paul Revere in his midnight ride in, in, in the 1700s when he's riding across Massachusetts to warn the Americans that, that the British invasion was about to happen. You know, you know the story, Paul Revere on horseback. And what was his message? It was very simple to the people as he rode through Massachusetts. The redcoats are coming. The redcoats are coming. 
The redcoats are coming. Imagine if he would have been riding on horseback and just yelling at the top of his lungs as he passed the houses. Hey, guys, get ready because the British invasion is about to happen. I don't know what they're going to be wearing, but they're going to be coming. We've got to be careful and get ready. Here, we go. Here they come. Here they come. Wouldn't have been as clear as the redcoats are coming. The redcoats are coming. The redcoats. And we know that. It almost echoes through the generations that he rode across Massachusetts and warned the colonials. And what happened? Well, we know at the battles of Lexington and Concord that the Americans, the colonials, were able to stand and ultimately hold on in those battles. And then ultimately, many years later, were able to win our independence. Uniforms are important to armies. They help us distinguish who they are, and just like armies have uniforms, Jesus says, your uniform, Christian, is love. Your uniform, the way the world knows you, the way you will be set apart, the way your fruit will bear for the world to see is by your love. But this uniform is inside out. You can't put this uniform on the outside and expect it to change the parts that actually need to be changed on the inside, which is very important. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 will be on the screen. This is a familiar verse of scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new Creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All of it is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're talking about today. Loving one another, the ministry of reconciliation, that that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God did this, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us now the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Anybody old enough to remember the royal ambassadors? Anybody? A few of us were that. I had my vest, had the patches, was proud of them jingling as I walked through the halls of the very Southern Baptist Church that we were a part of, royal ambassadors. I think that's where they got that from. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. GAs was something. Girls in action? Say again. Girls auxiliary. Makes less sense than royal ambassadors. But. <laughs> Thank you, though, Joel. I appreciate it. I'll remember not to say that next service because I, I don't know where that's going to take me. But <laughs> Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We could just stay here the whole time. This is the message. Like, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. 
We've been given this message of reconciliation, the gospel of your salvation. You've been given this message that, that can free people from their sins because Jesus died and rose again and all those who trust in him may have the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe in Christ and you will be forgiven. This is our message and our ministry is about taking that to the world, the ministry of reconciliation. And, and think about this for a second. God has made you an ambassador and he's making his appeal through you. That's what the word says. So Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's where it all begins. We love because he first loved us. That's where it all begins. I implore you, Paul says, be reconciled so that you can then help others with this message of reconciliation. In verse 21, one of the most beautiful in all of scripture, for our sake, for my sake, for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He didn't sin. He never sinned. He, he didn't even know it. But he became sin out of obedience so that he could endure the penalty that we deserved. And so the wrath of God on Jesus is the only reason now that we can be reconciled to God because we trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross when he endured that wrath for the forgiveness of our sins. And now we can be reconciled and we might become the righteousness of God. This is inside out transformation that anyone is in Christ will become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Inside out, this, this, this uniform, we don't put it on like the army, we put it on from the inside out. Think about the devil, for example. The devil, Satan, can imitate many things. He can imitate it, he can put it on. The, the Bible says that he can even believe, like the demons believe and shudder. The devil can profess, the, the devil can quote scripture with the best of them. You know that scene when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness and he's quoting scripture to Jesus, he's like sort of twisting it. The devil can put it on. He, it, the Bible says even that the demons tremble, like they tremble at the glory of God. Like they have a response to the glory of God. He can do all those things, but, but he can't love. He can't love like this. Why? Because this kind of love springs from the inner being. I'm trying to help you see. It's inside out. It springs from the inner being. The devil is full of malice and envy and hatred and revenge. And so he can try to imitate love, but eventually he's going to be found out because his inner being is full of the wrong things. It's going to come up out. This kind of love springs from a deeper place. 
a deeper place that must be transformed by faith in Christ. If we're gonna love this way, if we're gonna love one another just as Christ loved us, we have to be transformed in that way. In John chapter 13, we read it just a second ago, one of the verses, I'm gonna give you some context for this. This was the night before Jesus was crucified. This was the night before the crucifixion. And all through the upper room, the disciples were around the table and Jesus just did an incredible, like mind-blowing act of service by washing their feet. He robed himself, he got, he got down with the towel and he's got his basin and he's washing the disciples' feet and, and he's, he's doing this example of love and service because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So he's, he's showing this to them before he goes to the cross. And then in the same scene, as they're around the table, Judas begins his betrayal right here in this, in this moment. And, and Jesus knew it was coming. He knew exactly what was gonna happen. And, and even the disciples were asking you know, what he was talking about. And, and, and Jesus leans over to John, who's reclined on his chest, the disciple who Jesus loved, who's writing this gospel account for us today. And, and, and he whispers, Jesus whispers to John how the betrayal's gonna go down how Judas is gonna betray him. And you could go back in John 13 and read all of this context, but this is an unbelievable scene. And then Judas leaves, because Jesus said, just go on and do what you gotta do. And Judas leaves the upper room and, and Jesus sits back and he starts speaking to the rest of the disciples that are there. And this is what he says in John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I just want you to see that this, it's just a picture of Jesus's life and ministry. But, but even in this picture in the upper room, after Jesus has knelt down and washed all of their feet, how he's displaying this love to them. And then he says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, just as I have loved you. You, you also are to love one another. So he gives them the standard, right? He gives it, like the standard is love just as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you. That makes me nervous. Just as, like I've got to do it just like that. Is that that's what that means? Like I, this is the uniform, like this is it, this is the whole thing. It's like, I've gotta, how am I gonna do that? Just like,
The Apostle John also wrote about this love in his first letter. We see it in, in all through, but let's just look at verse 14 of 1 John 3. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we have love for the brothers and sisters. That word there is not gender specific. It's talking about the family of God. This is how we know that we've passed from. So, so Jared, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if, if I've really been forgiven and, and really been, this is one really clear piece of scripture. There, there will be fruit in this way. How do we know? that we've passed from death and into life? How do we know that we've been saved by grace and ultimately secured for all eternity as a child of God? Well, well one way and, and the chief way, the chief mark of the Christian is his or her love for one another. This is how we know, John says. In the first century, people were often recorded uh, saying about Christians that, that your master made you all brethren. Your master made you all brethren, like brothers and sisters, family. Like he, he made you kin. In other words, because of the love that we're observing in you towards one another, it seems like Jesus, before he left, magically made you brothers and sisters. It's not magic, it's regeneration. And this is a product of the new birth. This is what, I, this is what I'm trying to say, that it comes from the inside out. And, and Jesus did do something, and, and what he did was he made us a new creation. And when you become a new creation, all of a sudden, you're empowered to love one another. Like, I don't even like you. I'm just gonna do this, you know? But I love you. What's that about? Like, and in the first century, they, were, they found this to be some kind of strange thing that stood out in the crowd. That it just illuminated the Christians. This was what set them apart, which is what the Bible said. And I love it when the world sees what the Bible said and they don't even know that they're saying what the Bible said, that, that Jesus, your master must have made you all brethren. Yeah, that's what he said he was gonna do. That's what he said he was gonna do. But he didn't do it the way that we think or that we would have strategically done it. He did it from the inside out. He didn't give us all the same preferences. He didn't make us all the same color. He didn't make us all like the same music. He did something deeper. He dug a deeper well on the inside. And now love springs from that new well that new creation. We've been loved with the greatest of loves. And our only response yep, is to love one another. That's our only response. Because we've been loved with the greatest of loves and Jesus has given us the model. He said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what does this look like? I'm gonna give you three characteristics of this love that we are to embody. 
What does this love look like in our daily life? I'm going to give you three characteristics, and then I'm going to give you an example, a very difficult, complex example of how we are to live our Christian life with our Christian brothers and sisters and the world around us. How are we to do this? How are we to live this out? That's going to be the rest of our message today. Three characteristics of Christ's love that we should embody. Number one, this love is selfless. Selfless. We see in Jesus' life that, that his love was completely unselfish. He, he was constantly giving himself away in unconditional love, like the love that has no conditions. We watch him, we watch him love his disciples in their weaknesses, in their errors, in their backslidings, in their manipulation, in their arrogance. Like it, it almost seems like Christ loves them strongest when they least deserved it. Like when they were being the biggest buffoons. I don't know, couldn't find a better word. It just happened, buffoons. You know, they're being biggest whatever. They, did, they least deserved it and he loved them. The emptiest cup can receive the most water, but that's a message for another day. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Knowing full well what was about to happen, knowing full well how he was going to be treated, knowing full well that he had been stealing from the money bag that Jesus put him in charge of, by the way. Jesus knew the whole time he'd been taking for himself, been stealing. And how does he reward him? He washes his feet with the rest of the disciples. See, in our humanity, if we're thinking about this the way that we are wired, maybe well, I'll just speak for myself. If I'm thinking about this the way that I'm wired, I'm thinking, if I know Judas is doing that, I'm not giving him all the bread. I'm not washing his feet. Or maybe I'll wash it, but then I'll like pinch it while I'm down there, like wash it a little less and leave. <laughs> Leave it a little stinky on the right side, you know, so that something. We just think about that. We just let that sink in that, that Jesus washed Judas's feet. That Jesus didn't love people based on what they did or what they gave. This is powerfully supernatural. <laughs> like, I don't have that in me without him. You see what I'm talking about? How can we embody this? How can, how can my love be selfless like Jesus' love was selfless? Let's start with Romans chapter five, since you asked. Verse one, great part of scripture. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, McGraw, you own it today and I am grateful. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
even when we're suffering and even when we're being persecuted and even when circumstances don't add up, but we still have hope. That hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through faith by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Poured. The love of God that surpasses all understanding poured out into this well that's been dug in the new creation. You see that? This is supernatural and it has to be because I don't have it in me without him. So what empowers me to love like Christ? God's love has been poured into my heart. And this process is happening all the time. And I'm going to him and I'm, and I'm admitting and repenting of the fact that I don't have that love in me. And all my flesh is getting in the way of where he's trying to pour in. And then the Holy Spirit removes all that when I repent and makes more room for his love to be poured so that the fountain can be his. Divine love springs from the well that only the Holy Spirit can dig. Divine love. Agape love, selfless, self-giving love springs from the well that only the Holy Spirit can dig. You can't dig this on your own. You can't dig it out with good deeds and good, good effort. It's only by faith in him. It's only by going to him and saying, I need you to dig it out. I need you to get rid of me. This is the process of sanctification where the Holy Spirit removes our flesh. He, he digs it out and, and he pours God's love into the well that he has dug. The Holy Spirit is helping us to love more selflessly. Number two, this love is active. Active. Christ's love was alive and real when he was on the earth. And it, and it still is alive and real. It's, it's active. It's not just a profession. He didn't just say it one day and then act contrary to it the next. That's not the love that our Savior has for us. Maybe you have somebody in your life that says they love you, but they don't live up to it. Maybe you've had somebody in your past that said, I love you, I love you, I love you, but then they didn't act like it over here. How quickly do we lose trust in those people? How quickly do we lose trust in the words that we're hearing? And then how quickly does that affect the way that we see everybody else when they say they love you? But the example we have in Christ is different. The example we have in Christ is perfect love. Perfect love. And perfect love is perfect because it acts. Perfect love is perfect in part because it says something and it does that something. It's active. 1 John 3, 18, the apostle John encourages us, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, the, the Apostle John is not saying, don't say that you love him. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's not telling you to stop using your words. He's telling you not only should you say it, but you should do it. 
The, the world should find you as a truth teller when you say you love because they've seen you do it. Deed and truth. The, the NIV renders, we should love with actions and in truth. I like that one. Because love is active. Look at the verse before, 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? These are the ones that challenge us a little stronger. This is the context for him saying, let's not love only in word and deed, or word and talk, but let's love in deed and in truth, in action and in truth. If, if you have plenty and you don't give it to a brother or a sister who is in need of it, how can you say that you have the love of God in you? It's not adding up, John said. It's not adding up. It's got to add up. Like James teaches us in his epistle that faith without works is dead. And John teaches us in different words in his epistle that love without works is dead. Your love has to be active if it's going to be like Jesus. So this love is selfless. This love is active. And number three, this love is sacrificial. This love is sacrificial. It, it gives of itself. You know that, that book called The Five Love Languages? You know that? It's Gary Chapman. And anybody know that? Anybody struggle with that like me? Like, especially with your spouse? Nope. Good. By myself. I'm used to being lonely up here. <laughs> Five love languages. It's, um, it's physical touch. It's, and I was just telling you that's me. Acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time. There's one more. Gifts. Heard it from you. You're a gifts type of gal. Are you a gifts type of gal? No. What's yours, Mo? Quality time. Funny enough, that's my wife's too. But but really, quality time is not what she means. She means quality silence. You know what I'm saying? Which poses a problem for me. Because when we're on a date, and I like quality time, but I have a different definition, and I want to talk to her about all the dreams and aspirations in her heart. And I, I want to talk about the things that we're going to do in our future, and I want to talk about our kids and how we're going to help them, and I want to ask her all these questions. Baby, just tell me about your dreams. And she's like, can I just read my book? and not date right now, you know, <laughs> or go to a movie so we don't have to talk, but we can enjoy it together and it's quality silence. <laughs> Sometimes it takes great sacrifice to speak to your spouse in their love language, right? It takes great sacrifice because love is sacrificial. Love is about the other person. It's not about you. It's about them. It's, like I got to know them to love them. And, and I've got to have a different motive in here because in my flesh, I want what 
I want and my love for somebody else includes what I'm gonna receive, but that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus' love was sacrificial. And we all may have different love languages, but love only has one language, and that language is sacrifice. Love's language, love's love language is sacrifice. And its motto is, I give you myself. This is how it works when it comes to Christ's love. This is what he lived out. This is the example he proved, that he was constantly giving of himself. That's what love meant in his life. John 15, 12 and 13, look at this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is actually in the same scene before Jesus was crucified. It's awesome. If you read John 13, 14, 15, 16, you're going to see in this scene. And then 17, he goes to the garden. This is all the night before he was crucified. Like, this is my favorite. I know I say that a lot, but this is my favorite part of Scripture. Because we get to see what Jesus was experiencing and thinking and, and prioritizing on his last night. And this is what he said. This is my commandment. Just to reiterate that you love one another as I have loved you. And look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The night before he did that, he said that. And he said it for us to model too. Greater love. There is no greater love than this, Jesus said. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's sacrificial. That's, that's the essence of, of love. That it's, self, it's selfless. It's active. And it's sacrificial. A church without love is like a tower without cement between the bricks. Like none of this will last apart from Christ's love as the mortar that holds it all together. And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how we're building the church here and, and we're, we're all individual stones on the cornerstone Christ and we're being built and held together by the love of God in Christ and, and what, so what are, what are the things that hold us back from, from that? Like, what are the obstacles? And if we were to point out one obstacle that was the greatest obstacle to us being held together by love, for, for, for me loving you, what is it? Like, what would be the number one thing that rose to the surface? And this is what I think it is, forgiveness, forgiveness. Very complex, very difficult, very unnatural, to be honest, to forgive. That's why when I told you that Jesus washed Judas's feet, even though you knew that, you just hadn't thought about it that way, maybe, because it's like, no way. After all, he's going to do. It's very unnatural for us to forgive. Like, raise your hand if you are really excited about forgiving somebody. Like, it's your favorite thing to do in the whole world is forgive. You remember, um, if you're married or if you're dating and you're serious about it or something, or I don't know. It, it, do you remember looking at your, let's just talk about the married people just for a second. I'm sorry, I can't include all of you, but let's just 
put yourself in those shoes. Do you remember when you like went out with your then boyfriend or girlfriend and, and you, you, hadn't, you didn't know that you were gonna marry them yet, but you, you knew like, oh. And you just looked into their eyes and you were like, I could never be mad at them. There's no way. And then you got in the car and you couldn't help, you couldn't wait to call your girlfriend and be like, he is so cute. He is so, like, he makes me laugh. Like, even, even when he just sits there, he makes me laugh. And I just can't handle it, how much he makes me laugh. And I don't think there's any way that I could ever be mad at him. And then, and then fast forward however many years later, and, and he won't stop leaving the socks on the floor. And I can't stand him at all. I think it's over. The dirty clothes, I've had enough of the socks and the under. If I have to pick up that underwear one more time, that's dirty. You know, it's like forgiveness is just really hard. It's really unnatural. But forgiveness is love's oxygen. Forgiveness pumps love full of breath and it just keeps it going. Like there's no... Getting away from forgiveness. You can hold your breath for a while, but eventually you're going to pass out. Your love's going to run out of gas. It's going to run out of oxygen because it needs, to, it, needs constant for, it needs constant forgiveness. Constant. This is something we can't get away from. It's so unnatural. So what are we going to do about that? And here's the truth about forgiveness. We won't love like Christ until we have been loved by Christ. And that love begins with forgiveness. That love begins with him forgiving us so that we can have reconciliation. Because if it weren't for his sacrifice, reconciliation would not be possible. We can't miss that. We can't remove his sacrifice and his sufferings from the equation and still be saved. Because we have to be forgiven. We read, we read Romans 5, 1 through 5 earlier. I'm going to read 6 through 8 now in the context of that. This is beautiful about our reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, not when we got it all together enough, not when we brought him just enough, not when we came cleaner, not when we had asked for enough forgiveness to be made right. Not when we had gotten our pro list higher than our cons list on our day-to-day -day sin counting. No, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God in contrast to what is natural, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, when we weren't deserving, while we were in the middle of our sin, Christ died for you so that you could be forgiven. 
See, repent is the first word of the gospel. Jesus came out and began his ministry. He said, the time has come. Repent and believe. Repent. Turn. Change your mind. And believe in me, Jesus said, for the forgiveness of, of your sins. Repenting of sins and trusting in Jesus' finished work for the forgiveness of sins is the only hope to experience the love of God and then to be able to spring forth love for one another. When Paul teaches us about relationships in some of his letters, I'm just gonna use two examples. He always goes back to the gospel. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Look at Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility, meekness, and patience, and bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive. How? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He said, put it on. Put it on. But we know we don't put it on like this. We put it on in here. And it's no coincidence that Paul talks about forgiveness in both of these places and he compares the way that we are to forgive to the way that Christ forgave us because he's always going back to the gospel. What's our response to the gospel in our relationships? Well, forgiveness is a big part of that. Because you have been forgiven, you are now liberated, you are freed to forgive. 1 John 4.10 says we love because he first loved us. We love because he first Loved us. This love was unlocked by Christ's love that forgave us. And when you understand what you've been forgiven from, your response is to forgive as you've been forgiven. The, the greatly forgiven will forgive greatly. The, the, the one who has been greatly forgiven will forgive greatly. So the challenge for us today, among the many, is there should be no limit to our forgiveness to one another. There should be no limit for our forgiveness. First reason why is because Jesus put no limit on his forgiveness toward us. No limit. He even washed Judas' feet. He even saved Paul on the road to Damascus in a miraculous way, the one who was killing God's people. There's no limit on the forgiveness that we should show one another. Peter seemed to be frustrated with something or someone when he asked Jesus this question in Matthew chapter 18. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, 
How often am I going to have to do this? How often do you really expect me to forgive them? As many as seven times I'm supposed to do this? And this is what Jesus said. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I know that says 77 times. It's actually not a great translation. Some translations say 77 times, but the original language shows us that first word is 70 times, and then there's another word for seven after that. So it's better translated 70 times seven, but really the point is not what that number is. You don't need to get lost in all that. The point is that Jesus is taking Peter's mind off of a numerical value, and he's telling him that forgiveness is limitless. That word, 70 times Seven there in the original, it's, it's symbolic and representative of, of limitless. Completeness is, is another way that they use this term. Complete. In other words, it's total. Like there, there is no number that's going to get you enough. It, it's, it's total. It's, it's, it's limitless. It, it's all time you should be doing this. There's no limit to the forgiveness of God, so there should be no limit for your forgiveness to one another. But, but, no, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was so mean to me. You're up there talking, Jared. You're up there talking. You don't even know. You don't even know my life. You don't know how much I've gone through. You don't know how horrible he was to me. You don't know how, you don't know the things that he said. You don't know the things that he did. You haven't been there. You, just, you don't understand how much that hurt me. You know, the, the place where sometimes the deepest wounds occur is right here in the church. Because we've got this expectation up here that church people aren't going to be the way that the world is. Like, why are my worldly friends nicer to me than my church friends? Like, maybe you've felt that way before. Like, sometimes the deepest wounds happen in here because we've got this expectation that we're not supposed to be like the other people. And the truth is we're not supposed to be like other people. But the other truth that's very true is we are people. And the church is imperfect because people are in it. And as soon as you find a perfect church, it won't be perfect anymore because you'll be there. <laughs> but some of the deepest wounds we have come from inside of these walls. Like, you don't understand how much that hurt me. You don't understand. He said that. I heard that he said that. I heard that he told them that about me. And, and I heard that it was like that. And there is no way I could ever speak to him again. No way. I want to introduce you to a, a, a hero named Corey Ten Boom. Maybe you've heard of her. She's a hero. I'm going to tell a little bit of her story. I'm going to actually read what she wrote about her story. But Corey Ten Boom was, was a prisoner of war in, not, in Nazi concentration camps. And her whole family died. Okay? Her whole family was killed in Nazi concentration camps. And, and their crime 
was hiding Jews in their home. They were, they were they're trying to help Jews be saved from Hitler's regime. And so their penalty was ultimately death, except for Corey. She, she survived somehow. And after the war ended, Corey began speaking and, and writing about her story. And she was telling as, as many as she could about the hope that she had in Jesus that carried her through. And she was telling her powerful story as many chances as she could get. And she wrote this book called The Hiding Place. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's really powerful. It's a bestseller, The Hiding Place. And I'm gonna read a, a, a section, an excerpt from that book here because she can tell it way better than I can. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time when I was in jail. And suddenly it was all there in this room in Munich, the, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy who eventually died and her pain blanched face. And it was there in Munich where he came to me as the church was emptying and he was beaming and he was bowing. And he said, how grateful am I for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. This guard who was there, who inflicted so much punishment and hatred on Corey's own family was now coming to her as she's preaching in a church in Germany and he's, shake, he's trying to shake her hand and he's saying, you preach that message today and it's true for me and I can't believe it because of what I've done. He has no idea who she is. His hand thrust out to shake mine and I who had preached so often to the people there about the need to be forgiven kept my hand at my side. Even as the anger and vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Like Jesus Christ had died for this man. So was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And I tried to smile and I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I, I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity at all. And, and so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And then she said this, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the very love itself. He doesn't just command it. 
He doesn't just command us to love just as he loved. No, no, no. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dig a deep well and pour God's love into our hearts so that it can spring forth in times where we have nothing in us that wants to forgive. How does that relate to your life? Maybe it gives you some perspective on what you're holding on to and you're refusing to forgive for. Maybe it gives you some perspective. Maybe it doesn't touch what you've been through and how you've been hurt. And I'm not gonna try to stand up here and act like I know your story and I know how much you're hurting. All I can do is point you to Jesus and say, forgive as he forgave you. And sink deeply, sink deeply into this gospel reality. And the deeper you go, the more truth you're gonna find and the more he's gonna change the way that you act, the way that you forgive, and the way that you love. So what will you do today? What will be your response? I want to invite you to just ask the Lord to lead you today and ask him to speak clearly about how he would lead you to response, maybe to respond. Maybe it's in the altar today first to pray to him and ask him for clarity on how you're to respond. Maybe you already know who you're supposed to forgive. Maybe you already know where you're lacking in love. This is where I exit and the Holy Spirit does his work. But don't leave today without responding to him. If he's leading you, if he's pulling you, if he's drawing you in, maybe for the first time, he's drawing you to himself to be saved. Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe this doesn't make any sense because you've never been saved by the grace of God. Today is the day of salvation. He is here. He's here to save. Call on his name today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps, and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org and don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.